0: Hello, folks. This is your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. Before we jump into this week's episode, I have a special announcement. August 18th through the 20th, I've been invited to host the Triad Mental Health Summit. This virtual online conference showcases innovative trends and thought leaders in the mental health and behavioral health industry. Such speakers as Saj Razabi from the Psychedelic Somatic Institute, Kathleen Stengel from NeuroAbilities, Aaron Williams, from the National Council, including live interviews I'll be conducting featuring Todd and Vanessa Steinberg from Kumoso Design, Ron Anderson from Project Reclaim, and Lori Ignacio and Jody Gearson from the Hawaii Pro Bono Mental Health Center. This event is online and free to attend. So go to tryathq.com slash TMHS to learn more.
1: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective.
0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Jonah Cunningham. Jonah serves as president and CEO of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Developmental Disability Directors. In this role, he proactively advocates for national policies that recognize and support the critical role counties play in caring for people affected by mental illness, addiction, and developmental disabilities. Previously, Jonah worked at Trust for America's Health, a public think tank, where he focused extensively on ways to reduce mortality from substance misuse and suicide. Jonah has received numerous awards and recognition for his commitment to the field of behavioral health, and those served by the nation's behavioral health system. He has a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Utah and a master's in public policy from George Washington University. Jonah, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you here. Hey, you know, I know you've got a background in public policy and in political science. Give our listeners a sense, though, of what brought you into your current advocacy role of NACBED. I will say behavioral health policy
1: kind of found me after I finished my undergrad, I started working for Congresswoman of Grace Napolitano from California as an office manager, answering phones, guiding tours. When the health liaison or health legislative assistant was leaving and there was an opening, so obviously I jumped at the opportunity, right. not knowing that this is a critical role administering the Congressional Mental Health Caucus. And I'll admit, I did have some internalized stigma about mental health. i feared that every meeting would end in trust falls or people crying on my shoulders. But then once the rubber hit the road and I started taking meetings and really learning, took to it you know like a, a fish to water. It right. really is a civil rights issue. And it, there's a lot of movement. It's been exciting to see how far we've come and how
0: far we've yet to go. That's a nice transition for you. You know, I know at National, the things I'm reading and, and, and learning about you guys, you guys are the premier voice. In fact, I've read that it's the only voice at the national level in Washington for the nation's county-based public mental health systems to have a voice, really. And I know you guys endeavor to support a national forum for state and local collaboration and education advocacy and shared solutions that then get to drive policy. That's That's a pretty exciting level of impact you guys get to have. Give our listeners a sense of how National goes about doing this. First, it starts with
1: community. And how we build communities are a number of different ways. We have a committee structure where we're able to have a, a, a place for people to share notes. We talk about a specific issue. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, you know, states vary widely on how what their public mental health or behavioral health systems look like. Mm-hmm. But it's almost universal that these systems have been disempowered over time, underfunded, overworked, and the demand just keeps climbing. Absolutely. So we want to build a sense of community and support. For sharing solutions, how did you navigate these past problems, but also for that type of professional support yeah. where, you know, if you need to need vent, you need to connect with somebody, we want to do that. Right. And then also just informing people on it. We take a systems level approach. You mentioned, you know, in the overview where it doesn't start and end in the clinician's office. Mental health, I like to say, or behavioral health, it's a health problem with social solutions. Yeah. So it's not only, you know, in the clinician's office but it's an education it's housing it's social services it's nutrition so we want to partner with people and we want to actually help navigate these systems so part of it is explaining what congress does what are the levers that we can pull for example the most recent debate what's the debt ceiling how would that affect our field what are our appropriations and you also mentioned you know we're the county we're the local level so there's kind of this hierarchy right? Where the federal government has a certain role to play, funding, research, block grants, things like that. The state has a role to play in in oversight. And then the county and local and uh, regional authorities, that's really where the rubber hits the road. Mm. It's where the dollars meet the people. That's where, you know, really you're connecting with your neighbors and trying to help them.
0: You know, I know that there are wide variations in how states organize their local public mental health systems and and, and organizations. What kind of information do you tend to acquire from the various state and community mental health authorities that you would then take to and present at the federal level for decision-making?
1: A couple of things. First is just explaining what the system is. I know we have a heck of a long name, so oftentimes we, we have to explain what that looks like. We've done a couple of things. Most recently, we actually did a state comparison report Looking at two really prominent systems, Michigan and Texas, so north yeah. and south. I read about and that. And looking one. at at the, how they organize their local mental health authorities, actually yeah. including a map, their relationship with Medicaid, which is the yeah. number one payer for behavioral health services, and also the intersection with crisis services since the launch of nine eight eight, the behavioral health crisis line last year. Yeah. How how does the system work with that, or is it you know another silo that we're building? So part of it's explanations right to policymakers what the system is but another piece is also raising up best practices yeah there's a lot of creativity that's happening a lot of creation was it necessity is the mother of all innovation that's right and there's a lot of innovation happening out of necessity in the fields whether it's partnerships between different sectors to launch 988 figuring out who to respond how do we guide these calls braiding and blending funding even partnerships between community mental health and law enforcement for shared staffing arrangements. You know, we've tried to highlight that and help inform policy on how how these systems are currently being built and how that money and those resources are trickling down to the local level.
0: Yeah, I I really enjoyed reading, and I'll share where I got this from, the study you guys did with Michigan and Texas. You have some great information in there to kind of share best practices approach. And I was going to ask you, kind of an example of a recent public behavior health policy that the federal government has a role in creating that came out of what you're providing them with in your advocacy role 988 and the crisis response team the new national number for suicide was huge and we had a chance on our podcast a while back to talk to the two senators that were a part of putting that together give us a sense maybe of some of the advocacy you've done around sharing some of the best practice standards and what research that you guys were able to acquire, then you got a chance to share with our leaders. I will say, I'll give you three examples.
1: One. So the first, funding's a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So with 988, we were in touch with both advocates in on Congress as well as our friends at the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration or SAMHSA. They also suffer from the long name syndrome like we do. But about the, the, the need for 988 for coordination, and for sustained funding. And we saw that over $500 million was appropriated last year. So a huge increase. If you go back in time a decade ago, it was $8 million for the national suicide prevention lifeline. Mm -hmm. So there's been tremendous investment for crisis services. Yeah. Another piece is it was an issue that there are three different types of prescriptions for opioid use disorder. One is buprenorphine and there was a cap on the number of patients that a prescriber could see called the X waiver. Now the X waiver has been eliminated. We signed on to letters. It's been a number of years really pushing that, but that also allows for more access. So more patient, more providers can prescribe buprenorphine. And we know that by the numbers, there's a lot of people that are struggling with addiction that need connections to care. So any barriers that we can remove is great. And then the third one, this is actually in a previous life at Trust for America's Health, where the SAMHSA and CDC have two different fundings for two different funding pots for overdose prevention. There's the state opioid response grants. They're over a billion dollars. go to the states. A few years back, they allowed it not only for opioids, but for stimulants, methamphetamine. It's because of the shifting crisis we've seen with substance use. Hmm. CDC it was not given that flexibility. So it was a very simple ask, you know, we're not asking for new money. We're not establishing a new program. We're just allowing them to then address stimulants, methamphetamines and other emerging drug threats. And we were able to get that language in, then allow that flexibility.
0: Really good. A little sidebar real quick, but give me a sense of what it's like to be kind of in the trenches in a, in a good way, being able to take this type of information to those that are decision makers. And I would imagine That in their position and not having just easily to acquire themselves the information necessary to make some really significant public policy decisions, because mental health is truly one of our biggest challenges right now as a nation. Nothing else is more important, really. We're going to live or die by our mental health. It's just probably not a surprising statement. But give me a sense, Jonah, of what it's like to be in front of them, their receptivity, the types of inquiries you might receive from them and just the general experience advocating in front of them the way that you guys do. Just a framework. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And despite
1: my youthful appearance, I've been in this game for, you know, over a decade. Yeah. And I don't remember a time when we would hold briefings and six people would show up. Three of them were my coworkers and three of them were my buddies. I bribed with coffee and donuts. I remember when we would organize a Congressional May is Mental Health Awareness Month photo, and there would just be a handful of, of members of Congress. Mm. That's changed. The dynamic has completely changed in the last 10 years, where, you know, if the photo is a metric, there are 70 members of Congress on the House steps yesterday taking a May is Mental Health Awareness Month photo. The number of bills, the attentiveness is critical. But I will say, whenever advocating, I like to use this framework of head, heart, and feet. So, you know, thinking about the evidence and the ways that you want to communicate with policymakers on any level. You can do studies, right? Looking at stats, think, you know, really appealing to the logical fields, cost benefit analysis, things like that. You can also appeal to their heart, where they're appealing to their values, the sense of right and wrong, talking about individual stories. But I like to say, all of that's for naught. If you can't reach their feet Mm -hmm. if you can't tell them once we leave this meeting i hope your boss will do xyz
0: Yeah,
1: and understanding what what the realm of possibilities are for their role and how to move this forward
0: yeah that's really good man really good you know you've been this for a while clearly and you've got a lot of clarity around from your conversations i'm going to imagine from inquire you know from your inquiries with the different uh, local communities give us some sense of the trends i mean the the obvious ones are going to be you know the opioid crisis and we know that suicide with the 988 is being addressed in some really cool ways what trends are you seeing out there and the response that begins to have with the work that you're doing there are dire trends right where
1: the introduction you mentioned the the so-called deaths of despair so Suicide, substance use, and alcohol-related deaths, which are at an all-time high. Hospitalizations for youth, for mental health conditions. Even disturbing trends from the Youth Risk Behavioral Surveillance System, or YRBS, which I'm sure we all read. But there were were a lot of dire stats about suicide ideation in youth and suicide attempts. Yes. I will say the encouraging part, despite all of that, right? Having hope despite all that evidence. There are other emerging trends we're seeing. For example, we had our conference in February. One panel we had was from Johnson County, Kansas, and where they noticed youth are more willing to talk about mental health. They're, yes. they're really encouraged by that, right? So they actually created internships for high schoolers to show that they can actually create a career helping individuals in care that need care. That's they cool. can work for their local mental health authority, and they can actually get paid To do so and actually they will help support them as they continue their educational journey so i think there's a way to kind of use that negative as a positive around the edges i know i I don't want to seem pollyanna-ish in my my assessment of the current challenges we're facing but i will say we have the attention we have the energy it's just channeling
0: that in the ways that we can we'll be right back after word from our sponsor Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. That's really well said. I always like to ask the folks that come on our show, our podcast here, and those that are in the trenches the way that you are, what do you think is at the root of some of these crises, the opioid, suicide, those are all just symptomatic of something. What do you think the all-time high problematic symptoms are foundationally due to? It's a great question. I'll give you a few possible answers
1: that might explain pieces of it. The first adverse childhood experiences are trauma, right? Things like abuse, neglect, incarceration of a parent as a child, right? And we know through studies, the tipping point seems to be around four for a host of negative outcomes, right? Not just substance use, suicide, but lower educational attainment, incarceration, teenage pregnancy, a whole host of negative outcomes because of trauma, because of something that happened as a child, right? Right. Another piece of evidence that just came out is this idea of loneliness or isolation, whether it's you know, because of technology or, or just because of the changes in civic life. The Surgeon General actually came out with an advisory two weeks ago about loneliness and isolation, and kind of giving a call that we need to figure out ways to help community organizations, to connect with our friends on an individual level. I think those two trauma, isolation, pieces of it. But then, of course, there's geopolitical things, you know, the proliferation of fentanyl, the availability of it, the shifting drug crisis from pain pills to heroin to now illicit fentanyl and other analogs with suicide, you know, access to lethal means. And I think there's been some disturbing trends that we've seen, especially on youth suicide. They've gone up, especially for youngsters, you know, 10 years old, 10 to 12, is the is that I was looking at the other day. Whether that's trauma related, but I think there's there's something there, and if I can tie together the systems piece, you look at those adverse childhood experiences, right? The systems that touch youth, you know, boys and girls club, education, social services, those are the systems that we want to partner with as a behavioral health and IDD organization to find these shared solutions because prevention, sometimes the best suicide prevention programs or the substance use prevention programs don't have that in their
0: titles yeah that, that's a terrific answer I, I really appreciate you taking a swing at that with me uh, i think it's such a key thing i think you know you talked about the aces the adverse childhood experiences we just had a show on that really an important piece to build into this understanding those things that occur in childhood that are adverse that are really shaping four more is a tipping point like you're saying three four and and it's such a challenging thing for children and then the loneliness. Here we are, the most you know connected, you know world ever, and yet we're talking about loneliness. Are you kidding me? You know, but we are in fact because people are more isolated because they're alone. And and the heart of it is what you said a moment back: that attachments are our basic need. How do we have healthy attachment? Starts in the family, and if the family can't manage that, then we're looking at other organizations that you're working with and putting together and strengthening and advocating for. To supplement some of the absence of the family interactions, what we found in the in the ACEs study is that you could have kind of just a good enough other, one person to be able to help navigate through these times. Adversity happens. We all have ACEs to some degree or, the other, or another, some more than others. And some have complex traumas in a way that really, really give them a big hole to kind of dig themselves out of. It can be done, but it's a challenge. And they sometimes need some unique help and some, some professional assistance in that, but also The reminder that the connection piece of it, like you're advocating here, can come from things like the Boys and Girls Club or people going in and talking with parents about how to talk with their children. That's what people need is that connection piece to work through these difficult times. If we can do that, we can establish. We can have corrective emotional experiences that allow us to work through trauma, heal, grow, and kind of reach our potential. So that was an excellent answer. And I I certainly appreciate that very much from your perspective. And what we can implement policies or, or support programs that do those types of things.
1: Yeah. I think that's the exciting part that we have this attention. We can help help supplement that.
0: Yeah, really good. Really good. You guys were I was talking about trends. You guys had a conference this past February. It was the uh, NACBID Legislative and Policy Conference. And it was described as the best little meeting in America. I love that as a little tagline there. That was very cool. And I was reading through different topic areas you guys were presenting on. One of the panels was panel three and talked about aspirations and where we need to go, the state and local solutions, you know, getting solutions and considering expansion of some of the opportunities within behavioral health in the communities. Share with us maybe some of the takeaways that maybe you haven't covered already, or we can repeat them if you like, but things that are going to be impacting the successful addressing of our mental health both at the national level, but also maybe in the community level? What are you looking forward to? We were intentional in our planning of the conference
1: that they wanted to focus on workforce and access, Mm -hmm. but not fall in love with the problem. I think sometimes we we really hyper-focused on the problem. So we were intentional with this last panel that you referenced. And it was Tim DeWeese, one of our board members, shout out Johnson County, Kansas, where he Mm -hmm. was doing a lot of that recruitment high schoolers Letting them intern in the community mental health center, helping them with job applications, and also showing, demonstrating that mental health can be a sustainable career. But other takeaways too were the idea of paraprofessionals as well, peer support, where there's peer support professionals for addiction, substance use, but also in the workplace as well. I know from my own personal experience, my brother's a firefighter and they have a peer support program. And it's kind of this intermediary, right? The, the immediate support is going to be the guys on your crew. That's right. Then you have these guys that also are firefighters. They have day-to-day, they get deployments, but they're trained in prevention. They have specialized training to be a peer support specialist for the department. And then you have as a backstop, the uh, department psychologist. Yeah. I think that model you can transfer not only for firefighters, but yeah. other workplaces that are high stress or this idea of Community-initiated care,
0: yeah,
1: kind of like an, an amplified mental health first aid, where people have rudimentary training on CBT or other types of interventions, and they're able to connect people to care. But I think just increasing the literacy, the mental health literacy of, of of communities, was a huge takeaway. Really? And I will say, uh, the other tagline for the conference was that we punch above our weight class. We, <laughs> yeah, I
0: read that. As certainly, as well. no,
1: good. That was <laughs> we good. We certainly
0: well. had some fun. Yeah, you guys did a nice job in that conference. Some of the panel topics seemed really interesting, and again, you guys are looking to create the conversations that I think bring awareness, bring understanding, bring you know ingenuity about what people are doing. How can we you know take what's good and make it better, make our be- you know better best? I think that's what you guys are really leaning into and swinging for in some really significant ways. Your advocacy role. You know, speaking of that, I know we're kind of winding down in our show here today, but I would love our listeners to receive a word from you, Jonah about the importance of advocacy and policy work. And I know it takes place at your level that that that's at the state and, you know, goes into our decision makers, you know, the federal level, but even, you know, in the community level, the, the average person can have a voice. So leave our listeners, if you would, with a, a word about the importance of advocacy and policy work that you'd like them to be thinking about after the show today. I'll start off with demystifying
1: policy and advocacy, yeah, right? Okay. Where. I like to say it's do what you can, how you can, where you can, mm-hmm. where maybe you have a, you're part of a professional association. You have a fly in in Washington, D.C. You could do kind of the traditional you know, song and dance of lobbyists. But advocacy is also educating yourself. It's reading a news article. It's attending the school board meeting. It's attending a town hall meeting. It's you know being aware. It's voting. It's just participating in the civic life however you can and making sure and understanding your voice matters because democracy is not a spectator sport. I will say with mental health, I think we're finding our voice, we're finding success, and we're amplifying that and pushing it forward. There's a lot of work to be done,
0: but we're doing what we can, where we can, how we can. Really good. Really good. Well, I would love our listeners, Jonah, to follow up after our show to find out more about Neckbid, about you and the work you're doing. How can they get in touch with you guys and follow up so you can check out our website at nacbhdd.org that's N-A-C-B-H-D-D
1: dot org, or you can email us at info at N-A-C-B-H-D. We drop one D on the emails for gotcha. simplicity's sake.org. org.
0: Really good. And so for those listeners that can't remember all those letters and the academic self, I had a little bit of challenge myself. We're going to have that on our our website for you to pick up as well. But thank you for that, Jonah. Hey, I so appreciate our time today, Joan. I'm so impressed with the work you're doing. Thanks for the advocacy work. Thanks for putting a voice to the things that are of need to be addressed. And I I think in doing so, we get to have what you said very early on, the whole area of mental health. You know, we talk about our physical health. We talk about our nutritional health. We talk about our financial health. We talk about our marital health, our parenting, you know, child health, with parents and child. But we very often have a different reaction to mental health. And I think through conversations like this, the work you're doing, we're getting to see that it's just one more leg of the stool, isn't it? It's nothing different than any other part of our health assessment. And our mental health, I really believe, is one of the main cornerstones in how our society is going to work, how a family is going to work, how an individual is going to work and be successful to really reach the fullest potential. And I so appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you so much for that advocacy work. Thank you for having me. It's been great to have you here today. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Jonah and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com bht. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com bht, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we look forward to having you back with us next time.